Many Canadians believe utter falsehoods about Canada's recent history and specifically the federal government's residential school program. Today, I speak to author and professor Dr. Tom Flanagan about his new book, Grave Error, How the Media Misled Us and the Truth About Residential Schools. I'm Candace Malcolm, and this is The Candace Malcolm Show. Hi, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning into the podcast. Don't forget to like this video, subscribe to True North Channel, leave us a five-star review if you enjoy the podcast, and head over to our website, www.tnc.news, to sign up for our newsletter so you never miss a story. So like I said in my intro, many Canadians believe utter falsehoods about our residential school program. This is in part deliberate. After an absolute bombshell of an accusation leveled in 2021 that human remains have been discovered in unmarked graves near a residential school in Kamloops, British Columbia, the legacy media took those accusations and weaved together one of the most destructive fake news narratives in Canadian history. The legacy media invented facts to embellish a story, like the idea that there were mass graves or that human remains had been excavated and confirmed. They turned accusations into historical facts without any evidence, without any proof, without even a published report. They told us that the story had all been confirmed. They told Canadians that these schools were death camps akin to Nazi concentration camps like Auschwitz. They told us that nuns, priests, and teachers working in these schools, presumably, were actually mass murderers. Now, the narrative went something like this. Most First Nation children attended these residential schools. Attendance was not voluntary. It was compelled, and it was enforced by the federal government. Attendance at these residential schools has traumatized Indigenous people, creating social pathologies that descend across generations. Residential schools destroyed Indigenous languages and cultures. That there are thousands of children who simply went missing. They went away to residential schools and were never heard from again. Many of these missing children were told were murdered by school personnel after being subject to physical and sexual abuse, even outright torture. These missing children were then buried in unmarked graves underneath and around schools and churches. And the carnage is appropriately defined as genocide. Finally, we are told to believe by legacy media that many of the human remains have already been located, they've been discovered by ground-penetrating radar, and that many more will be found as government-funded research continues. So as we all know, the narrative is false. Much of this information is simply not true. The legacy media has done tremendous damage to our national unity, our self-perception of ourselves as Canadians, and the stories we tell ourselves about our country. That is why it's incredibly important to talk about how the media got it wrong, to correct the record as much as possible, and to try to reach as many Canadians as possible with the truth. That's why I'm pleased and delighted that True North has teamed up with some of the top academics in the country to publish a book doing just that. Joining me on the program today is Professor Tom Flanagan. Tom is a professor emeritus at the University of Calgary School of Public Policy. Tom served as a campaign manager on Stephen Harper's Canadian Alliance leadership campaign, and again on Harper's Conservative Party leadership campaign. He is an award-winning author specializing in Canadian politics and Indigenous rights. And his latest book is a project with Dr. C.P. Champion, as well as several other leading academics in the field, including historian Conrad Black. It's called Grave Air, How the Media Misled Us, and the Truth About the Residential School. And Dr. Tom Flanagan, welcome to the podcast. Great to be here. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us. So uh, why don't you just tell us, first of all, uh, what inspired you to put this book together, to write this book, and uh, tell us a little bit about the facts behind Canada's residential schools. Well, it happened gradually after the uh, 
uh, the big announcements from Kamloops in uh, May of 2021. And I, like many others, was kind of caught unprepared by that. You know, I thought, gee, it's, you know, it sounds pretty bad. Um, but as I started to learn more about it, it seemed less and less plausible. Uh, I got linked up with a group of other Canadians, um, just a loose association by email, but other people who were uh, appalled by these announcements, but uh, didn't believe them. Um, and these were mainly retired uh, lawyers, judges, uh, journalists, professors, uh, uh, peoples who had made their living for their career out of um, uh, evidence and, you know, looking for evidence and reaching decisions on the basis of evidence. And, uh, you know, we all had more or less the same conclusion that the evidence wasn't there. It was a ground-penetrating radar, which doesn't identify graves, and uh, there were no excavations, um, and there were a lot of stories, uh, but those stories lacked documentation. So anyway, we started pushing back. We started writing um, critiques of the Kamloops announcement um, and related announcements because after Kamloops, there was a wave of other announcements from other reserves about similar types of, <clears throat> similar types of, shall we call them, pseudo findings. Uh, so we started critiquing these things. We immediately found that the legacy media, or corporate media, had, had no interest in in running uh, what we were writing. <clears throat> and this is, um, you know, this is, for me, it was strange because for the last 50 years, I've been publishing voluminously in the establishment media, Globe and Mail, National Post, um, university presses, um, magazines, McLean's, you know, you name it. And suddenly nobody, <laughs> nobody wanted my stuff um, or anybody else's stuff that was critical of the Kamloops narrative. So we started publishing in, uh, let's call it alternative media, like True North, um, the uh, journal C2C, Dorchester Review, um, Quillette, others, some international ones like Unheard. Uh, they were interested in running what, what we were writing. And uh, so we gradually produced what I thought was a, a pretty uh, impressive body of work debunking the, uh, and I'll call it the Kamloops announcements, but th there's actually much more than that, uh, debunking this narrative about unmarked graves and missing children. And it's all false. Uh, none, none of it's true. Um, so we thought, well, let's, uh, let's try and bring together the, the most important pieces and publish it as... <clears throat> as a book. Um, a book has uh, perhaps greater staying power than articles on alternative media, which are here today and gone tomorrow. Um, but books can get into the libraries and students can find them and um, over time, you know. So True North was, uh, um, what's the right word I'm looking for, courageous enough to step in. Um, and, no, and it does take a bit of courage it's no accident that most of the people in our research group are retired. We are, uh, uh, to some extent, uh, protected by uh, our status of retirement. Uh, you know, Janis Joplin saying freedom's just another thing, another word for nothing left to lose. Um, some of our contributors 
are so worried about their careers that they are writing under pseudonyms. They don't want their true their true names known. And so there's a couple in this book who are uh, in that status of, uh, you know, I, I don't know who they are, uh, but they feel they have to protect themselves. So uh, a bit of courage is required on the part of the publisher too. Uh, and so we're grateful to True North for, for taking this on. Uh, so that's the backstory, anyway, to where we are now. So I, I just want to uh, dig in on a few places there, Dr. Flanagan, because one of the things, I mean, you're, you're a very credible, established voice on this topic, and you, like you said, you've been writing in the legacy media for years and years and years. Why Why is it that the legacy media were unwilling to hear a contrarian voice? Like, we're told that the media is interested in unique stories, they're interested in hearing the other side uh, of the story. You know, when I looked at that press release when it got released, uh, I, I read it 20 times to try to figure out, like, what am I missing here? I don't see any evidence. I see a report that's forthcoming that they don't even have a date that they're re- releasing it. I see something about ground penetrating radar, which everything I Google about it doesn't really seem to be a very scientific, reliable method. You know, it seemed to, there's a lot of red flags on the day that the story came out for me as a journalist. Why, why is it that other editors, journalists, uh, legacy media in Canada, did they not have the curiosity? Were they afraid? Like, why, why, why is it that no one wanted to tell this other side of the story? Well, I I think it's a kind of a of, of a moral panic. Um, I would call it Canada's George Floyd moment. You have to remember the timing that the the George Floyd hysteria in the United States had taken place that spring, and um, Canadians are always looking for uh, something to prove that they're just as bad as the Americans are. <laughs> um, and I think this was our George Floyd moment. Suddenly, we had this. Uh, alleged evidence of uh, children being murdered and secretly buried and it was it was irresistible for um, uh, identity waving politicians of the progressive left like the prime minister you know for example um, and so there was a sudden uh, a sudden tipping point like up up till then the establishment media had been drifting uh, more and more to uh, uh, call it a, a left progressive position, but they they hadn't been totally shutting out other voices. Uh, and then, but then suddenly things changed around Kamloops, and so uh, you know, to me, it's a moral panic. That's the only phrase I can find to uh, to describe it when a bunch of people act together without very good reasons, but uh, ideas have caught on and people aren't asking critical questions about them and anybody who raises questions is attacked as a denialist. Um, so there was this tipping point uh, that took place then. Um, very strange, you know, nobody predicted this, but it uh, it happened and it was extraordinary. I mean, uh, some of the things that happened after Kamloops, the prime minister declaring that the Canadian flag should be flown at half-mast, uh, which continued for six months until... Uh, uh, Veterans Day in November. Um, the story was declared to be the story of the year. Uh, a photograph was declared to be, uh, and it wasn't even a photograph of a real person. It was a photograph, what was it, a photograph of a shirt. <laughs> it was declared to be the photograph of the year. I mean, this is, these are extraordinary events. Um, and and that's the kind of resistance that we're up against Uh and I can remember in the early days of my research 
friends, uh, acquaintances, relatives would ask me what I was doing. Uh, I'd try and explain it, you know. And uh, people would get very upset. People screaming at me uh, how wrong I was, you know. And these, in some cases, were people that I'd known for a long time. Um, now, that's not quite as true now. I think there's been, you know, our research has perhaps had some impact gradually, and uh, people are a little more open-minded, <coughs> excuse me, about it now. But initially, you know, there was just uh, th th this river uh, washing over you. Um, so we kind of huddled down in our research group, and we shared results and published where we could and tried to gradually build up the case, which we are now presenting in this book. Well, I'm very glad you did, and I remember those early days as well. Uh, I, I, it took, took some convincing of even my editors here at True North to put out a piece just ever so slightly uh, pushing back against the narrative. Tom, I think Canadians feel a great de deal of compassion and a, a sense of sort of sorrow about the state of First Nations people in our country. We can see that they, that they aren't as well off as other Canadians, and I think that the idea that Everything can be blamed on residential schools, and if it wasn't for this one program, uh, you know things would be fine and everyone would be equal. And so, uh, I think I think a lot of Canadians just felt a sense of guilt and sorrow, and so it was it was easy for them to sort of believe this narrative, even though the facts never held up. So, why don't you tell us a little bit about Canada's residential schools? Maybe you can uh, touch on some of the you know, uh, perceptions that aren't quite true that people have, like the idea that these schools were compulsory, that that uh, students were, were uh, you know, taken from their homes and forcibly put into these schools. Um, maybe talk about the, the, the origin of the school, the rationale and the intended goals of this program. Yeah, I will. Before that, I just want to say that uh, uh, True North was not alone in feeling this hesitation. I don't want to name names, but uh, I can think of at least three other editors of um, alternative media that I would regard as personal friends who initially were uh, reluctant to publish anything critical of the Kamloops narrative. Now, eventually they all got on board. That's, you know, that reluctance is over. But that was the attitude initially, that the people were afraid. Um, I mean, either they thought maybe we, they thought we were wrong or they were just afraid to stick their neck out, but it was difficult, even in alternative media, initially, to get the story out. Okay, uh, residential schools. Well, residential schools have been around in Canada since the earliest uh, uh, French exploration in the 17th century. The uh, Jesuit missionaries established residential schools in what is now the province of Quebec. And uh, schools were established later in Ontario by Protestant missionaries in the 18th century. Uh, and in the early 19th century, the government had nothing to do with it. They were, uh, uh, these were purely missionary activities. Uh, students attended on a voluntary basis. Um, there were quite a few of these schools by the late 19th century, um, still operating without government assistance. The turning point came in the 1880s. Uh, and the reason was the uh, uh, the settling of the West, uh, signing of treaties, the disappearance of the buffalo, uh, settling down of uh, Indians on uh, reserves where they were supposed to become farmers. Um, so a lot of things changed all of a sudden. The, um, the main form of education uh, for Indians up till then 
although there were some residential schools, but the main form of education were day schools, uh, which were also operated by Protestant Catholic missionaries. Uh, the problem with day schools was found that attendance was uh, sporadic. They weren't as effective as wanted, and so officials started looking for something more effective, and they, uh, this was the um, right, right at the moment when the United States was setting up a system of government-supported residential schools. So after a study of the American example, Canadian officials recommended to the government that the government start to subsidize uh, initially, it was only a handful of uh, what they called industrial schools. They're kind of like high schools, but they would teach uh, trades, you know, carpentry or blacksmithing, things like that. Uh, like everything else that government does, it, it grew uh, from a small start in the 1880s. Uh, the government started to subsidize more and more um, residential schools in the belief that they were a more effective form of education. Uh, attendance was voluntary. Um, there was no obligation until 1920 for any Indians to attend school. Um, unlike the rest of Canadians, uh, they had uh, their parents weren't obliged to send them to school. 1920, attendance was made compulsory, but not necessarily attendance as, at a residential school. Um, attendance at residential school was obligatory only if there was no day school uh, close by. Um, even then, the law wasn't enforced very consistently. There, were, there was a large number of Indians who didn't go to any school at all. Uh, the largest number who went to school went to day schools. So they continued to live at home, uh, go to school during the day, much like other Canadian um, students. Uh, then you had the residential schools, which were boarding schools. And there was a sizable number of students who uh, attended uh, residential schools uh, during the day only. These were residential schools were mostly uh, located on reserves. So that meant that there were, other, you know, Indian children living around them. And so some of those would attend um, on, a, on a daily basis. They were known as day scholars. Um, so that's the background, and the system continued uh, for a long time. At its height, about a third of maybe 40% of um, Indian students were attending residential schools. Of, of those who attended any school, 35 40% perhaps were attending residential schools. Uh, <clears throat> that number uh, tended to decline as we get into the modern times. Uh, government wanted to shift away from residential schools to um, having Indian children mixed with others in um, uh, public schools. Um, there was quite a bit of resistance to that. Uh, a lot of Indian parents felt that their children would be discriminated against in public schools. Yeah, I think with good reason. Uh, they were afraid for the safety of their children. They'd be afraid they'd be beaten up in uh, in public schools. Um, but anyway, as we get into the 1950s, the numbers of residential schools start to decline and you get more and more Indian children going to um, public or Catholic schools, off, mostly off reserve, which is sort of where we are now, except that we've established government 
supported uh, schools on reserve. Now we've gone back to the reserve. Uh, you might say we've gone back to day schools on reserve. There's some still attending uh, public schools in town. That's an important minority, but probably the majority now are attending um, day schools um, on on reserve. So we've kind of come full circle uh, to back to the 1880s, where officials were not satisfied with the results they were getting. And I have to say, it's a really a national scandal the results of of uh, children going to day schools on reserve today. I mean, the results are very poor. Um, but for political reasons, uh, under the heading of self-government, this has been deemed to be the only, the only possible approach. It's, it's, it's so unfortunate. I mean, I think you can objectively say that the that the program failed because you know half the country believes that these schools were were actually death camps, and you know the people who are skeptical of that claim uh, would still be critical of the system because clearly it didn't work in its intended goal, which I believe was to raise the standards and and to help uh, integrate First Nations children into the modern economy. Um, can, can we talk about the abuse that happened at residential schools? I, I mean, some of the claims are, are pretty fantastical, like the idea that 6,000 children were killed, uh, 4,000 of whom we have the names and records of. So that, uh, that that means that there's the claim is that there's 2,000, at least 2,000 children who went to school, were killed, and there's no record of them. There's no record of them ever existing. Now, I personally find that one hard to believe as a parent of three children. I can't imagine sending your child off to school and them never coming home and, and you never even bothering to write down their name or file a police report or anything like that. I, I find that claim very hard to believe, uh, Tom. But 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 certainly there was mistreatment. There there were many children that did die. Um, and, and, and I wonder if, if you can help us understand like how that claim went from, you know, children, some children were mistreated and abused as, as they were at, at many Catholic schools, it seems. Uh, we went from there to this idea that Canada committed genocide which is a statement that all of the parties in Canada's political system unanimously agreed, including the Conservatives, that Canada's residential school program was guilty of genocide. I wonder if you can comment mm -hmm. on that. Well, you know, first of all, you have to remember that residential schools existed over a long period of time. Uh, and I'm just, uh, just talking about government subsidized residential schools existed from the 1880s. Uh, well, up to the 1990s on a small scale, but, um, you know, uh, certainly about a, over 150 years. So conditions uh, were not the same at all times and at all places. They were all over the country. And so you're talking about, you know, almost 150 schools over 150 years. So almost any generalization is probably going to be not entirely accurate. Um Secondly, you have to remember that in all schools in Canada, um, in the early and, and extending into the mid-19th century, uh, corporal punishment was the norm. Uh, all schools used the cane or the strap on recalcitrant um, students or maybe just unlucky students. So, of course, uh, this happened in residential schools as well. But it was thought to be uh, the norm, normal part of the educational process. Um, there probably were, uh, and I'm sure there were uh, some abuses of that. Uh, you know, carried carried way too far. 
but the you know the general approach was consistent with with Canadian norms. Um, uh, sexual abuse, uh, I think there was you know I think it existed. Um, even with all the talk about it, uh, there's only a very small number of of um, missionaries who've been identified as complicit in sexual abuse. You know, a handful. Um, then there there are more uh, non-religious staff. There was a large number of staff in these schools. You know, there were cooks and janitors and dorm supervisors and and so on. Um, and some of these people have been identified, but probably the greatest uh, uh, occurrence of sexual abuse was uh, in in the dormitories among children themselves. This is uh, sort of a universal pattern in boarding schools all over the world. Um, older children uh, introducing younger children to uh, you know sexual adventures. Um, so yeah, that uh, that existed. Um, we don't know exactly how much, uh, but again, you know, I think kind of consistent with uh, experience of boarding schools everywhere. Um, the lurid stories that have emerged are all post-1990s, post-1990, and it starts with Phil Fontaine claiming that he was sexually abused at uh, um, his boarding school, Fort Alexander School in Manitoba. He never provided any details, and he never explained who it was that was was doing this, whether it were the missionary super or uh, secular staff or other students, but that uh, unleashed a flood of of complaints, and um, these were to a large extent induced by financial rewards. The government of Canada introduced a, a system of settlements for uh, claims which required no checking of evidence. Um, the only evidence that was checked was, you know, were you actually attending the school at, the, at that time? Um, and was the person you identified as the abuser, was he there as well? So just minimal checking, but there, there wasn't any evidence in cross-examination and so forth. So when the first settlement was made for residential schools, um, uh, there was a basic payment just for simply attending, but then there was another payment for for abuse, which could go up, uh, you know, well over a hundred thousand dollars. And the more <clears throat> the more grievous the abuse, the higher the payment. So there was a financial incentive to uh, present abuse in, in you know in maximum possible terms. Um, deaths in the schools. Um, were the schools death camps? No. Uh, Indian health was very poor uh, in the early 19th century, or excuse me, early 20th century. They had lost their traditional diet based on the buffalo and other game. They were eating unfamiliar foods. But the biggest problem was probably that um, they had no inherited resistance to uh, diseases that had come from Europe. Um, smallpox, measles, diphtheria, these were all, you know, for, for, for white children, these were mostly just, uh, uh, called them childhood diseases. Um, I had some of these when I was young. Uh, but they could be killers for Indian children. 
and the worst was tuberculosis. And uh, studies suggest that just about every child who came to a residential school was already infected with tuberculosis, which they had uh, caught at home on the reserve before they ever came. Um, people who ran the, uh, the schools uh, tried to cope with this. They set up nursing wards. In extreme cases, the children were sent to Indian hospitals. Uh, but inevitably, there were a lot of deaths, you know, which is sad. But I don't know that it was something that anybody had the power to change at the time. The death rates um, improved dramatically once... Um, I forget the exact date, but uh, a vaccination was discovered against tuberculosis, uh, which was the first measure, and then uh, antibiotics, particularly streptomycin. By, by about 1950, streptomycin had been introduced, and that uh, didn't eliminate all deaths from tuberculosis, but it certainly reduced it down to a, a more manageable proportion. So yes, uh, there's a history of children dying in uh, in the in the schools, but it was probably no worse, probably better than the deaths of uh, children on reserves. But those weren't recorded in the same concentrated way. Okay, so what about the claim then that um, genocide was committed at these schools? A claim that all parties, including Pierre Polyev and the conservatives, agree with. And 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 what about that claim, Tom? That there's been more than 6,000 deaths, uh, but only 4,000 whom we have the name for. Like, what do you make of that discrepancy? Do you think it's fair and accurate, or do you think that this is something yeah. that's being... Well, exaggerated? we don't even have the name for the four, the 4,100. Um, if you go through and look at the names that are listed in the website of the, um, the Center in Winnipeg, which is the uh, uh, successor to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, the, there's the National... What's it called? The National Center for something or other in, in Winnipeg at the University of Manitoba. Um, they've published a list of uh, children who died at the uh, at the schools, and um, that's online. You can go see it. It's, it's a, if you add it all up, it's about two thousand names. But even all of those um, didn't necessarily die at the schools if you if you study more carefully if you drill down name by name and look at the records there are provincial records death certificates as you get into the 20th century uh, quite a few of those children died oh in accidents off reserve maybe after they had left the school they they include names who died within a year of of having studied there so a kid could graduate go home um, have an accident when he's out trapping, drown, still be called a residential school death. So the real number is somewhere south of 2,000. Uh, these other numbers are just imagination, um, adding together poorly understood reports. Uh, there were individual reports, uh, and then there were quarterly reports which aggregated um, Names. And so there's duplication between them. So if you add those two together, you get larger numbers. And then you get into people just making it up, just estimates, uh, you know, which start to get bigger and bigger, 6,000, 15,000, 
uh, but those are just uh, those are just fantasy. They're not based on 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 anything. So if you look at names that can be documented as actually having died while they were at the schools, it's it's as I say, somewhat um, less than two thousand, and that's over the period from eighteen eighty two to nineteen ninety six for for the period of the existence of the schools. Now, is that a lot of students? Uh, to die for at a large system operating for 150 years. I mean, it, I don't know, 150 schools for 150 years, <clears throat> having lost perhaps less than 2,000 students, doesn't seem to me to be a, a huge number under the circumstances. Um, so there's been this kind of deliberate attempt to magnify the numbers, uh, but the, the, the lower estimates are the more reliable ones. Why do you think there's such a lack of of sort of scientific rigor and uh, balance and pushback when it comes to these government reports, like when it comes to the Truth and Reconciliation Report. I wanted to mention another one. There was a, a special report that the Liberal government put together on perhaps possibly criminalizing what they call denialism. There's a report that the interim report came out in June. The, the, the final report's supposed to be out in um, 2024, written by an individual named Kimberly Murray. I'm not sure if you saw it was in the news last week. Um, but this author is, is pushing parliamentarians to preemptively pass a law banning denialism before the report is even released. Well, why is it that when it comes to this topic, Tom, there's so little, uh, like I said, scientific rigor, um, really detailed analysis, pushback. You know, you don't see both sides. You really just see sort of one side uh, pushing through making declarations and then not a lot of, you know, any kind of verification happening. Yeah, I, I could be wrong, but I, I don't think that the uh, criminalization of denialism is going to pass. Now, by that, I mean amendments to the criminal code that make it a criminal offense to deny allegations about the residential schools. When that, when that came out, there were quite a few uh, negative editorials in not just in alternative media, but in in the legacy media as well. Um, you know, anything is possible, but I don't I don't think that's going to pass. The parliamentary resolution uh, saying that there had been a genocide at the schools that is kind of a low low point in um, uh, the history of Parliament to adopt a resolution like that. Um, but it happened at the height of the uh, um, height of the virtue signaling that took place after the Kamloops announcement. The resolution had been defeated the first time it was introduced, uh, and then after Kamloops, it was it was passed. But there was this now this kind of uh, attitude, uh, uh, the change in attitude after Kamloops. Uh, so that was probably the high point of uh, the high point of the low point, if you want to put it that way. That, that was the worst climate then. But I don't think that the criminalization will be legislated. There may be some other legislation, uh, vaguer legislation. Um, we'll have to see. I think it depends to some extent on uh, which party is in power. Um, how far how far they go Kimberly Murray is pushing to try and get it done now while the liberals are in power supported by the NDP that would be 
the most favorable coalition of forces to to support it. But I think that you know, you know probably the the NDP is probably outside. They always are for anything crazy like this. Uh, but I think there are people within the Liberal Party who would have second thoughts uh, about it. Um, so I personally, I don't think it will pass, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't think about it and worry about it. I mean, it is a very alarming idea that you would uh, want to criminalize um, uh, an area of historical research and public discussion um, in, in pursuit of a political agenda. Uh, you know, that is absolutely contrary to the working principles of uh, constitutional democracy. So um, even if it's unlikely to happen, uh, we should you know, certainly uh, certainly keep an eye on it. Uh, and I, I personally have been trying to lobby members of parliament about it to the extent that I can. Um, and I will continue to do so because, it, as I say, it was a low point for all the parties to line up in favor of that resolution about genocide having taken place at the uh, at the schools. Um, you know, and now members will tell you, well, it didn't really mean anything. It was just a resolution. It wasn't legislation. This kind of stuff happens all the time. They will say, it's rushed through at the end of the session, blah, blah, blah. But it's, um, you know, that, to use a scientific term, that's all bull. Uh, it was a, a low, a low point. Um, well, I absolutely agree. And even if it's symbolic, how, how, how is that? A symbolism of our country that every single elected official in the House of Commons agrees that Canada committed genocide. I mean, it's the worst charge imaginable. How can you go on as a country with any sense of national pride uh, if you truly believe that a school program was designed to mass murder and eliminate, exterminate an entire population? What's well, an example of unserious politics? You make the statement, but you don't really think about the consequences. You don't want the consequences of the statement that you make. The consequences of admitting to genocide should be an international investigation and denunciation in international bodies and on and on and on. Well, the members of parliament are, aren't asking for any of that. They're just uh, making the statement. So it's pure virtue signaling without thought of what the real world consequences uh, ought to be. Um, so again, uh, looking at it that way, it's another low point of parliament uh, passing a resolution without any thought given to what it actually means or what the consequences might be. That's such a good point. I hope you're right about the uh, law uh, that would potentially ban so-called denialism, a term that's never properly been uh, defined or, or, or explained. Uh, just, just to sort of re-ask this final question here, Tom, why is it that when it comes to reports on First Nations in Canada, whether it be the Truth and Reconciliation Report or this latest report uh, calling for uh, banning so-called denialism, well, wh why why don't we see, you know, real pushback research? I mean, every time you read one of these reports, it comes across like you're reading uh, something out of a, a you know, social science, uh, like s something out of a far left professor's social science uh, curriculum. It, does, it doesn't really seem to have have the kind of scientific rigor that you would expect. It, it, there's not two sides being presented. There isn't uh, the opposing view. It's, it's always very much just these really exaggerated uh, claims that kind of get put into historical record. I mean, that 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 figure that I quoted that they that, that, that you know in media reports it says it always says that there are four thousand names recorded of dead children 
and that the estimates are upwards of, of 6,000. Like, how do these how do these claims turn into facts through the Canadian government? Yeah, it's um, it, I mean, it really is quite extraordinary. Uh, members of our little group will, when stories run in legacy media about the four thousand or the six thousand or the fifteen thousand or whatever, maybe, uh, there are members of our group who believe in uh, trying to correct. The media and so they will write a letter to the journalist who's written this nonsense or to the internal ombudsman of the newspaper um, you know and nothing happens uh, usually, often you don't even get a response if you do get a response they'll say the CBC is a great one for saying well this meets our standards uh, <laughs> of, of journalism um, you know and we uh, we're prepared to furnish evidence of the fact that the numbers are much, much smaller than are being reported or that, in fact, no graves, no actual graves have been found. Uh, all that's been found is soil disturbances. Um, and I can't help saying in passing that the soil disturbances in Kamloops are almost certainly due to the sewage disposal system that was set up in the 1920s when uh, before they could tap into the city of Kamloops system, they installed a big septic tank with their own field, of, uh, and that means uh, installing weeping tile under the ground to disperse the liquids from the septic tank. And so there's thousands of feet of weeping tile laid in the general area of the apple orchard. So it's almost certain that what uh, um, the young anthropologists found was the weeping tile from the sewage disposal system, uh, which of course is a soil disturbance, but <laughs> it's not a. <clears throat> we we have an article about that in our in our book. Um, it's not well. Uh, if if, 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 if that's not a great if that's not a perfect metaphor for the whole situation, I don't know. <laughs> Intellectual is. sewage disposal is about what it is, <laughs> but you know this article has been out there now. It was posted on Free Press a couple of years ago. It's been out there for anybody to read for a long time. And uh, anybody who reads it should say, hey, wait a minute, what's going on here? But the the statement keeps being repeated that, that these 215 or 200 uh, grave sites were, were discovered at Kamloops. Um, we're, in, we're in a strange period of time when facts don't matter. Um, it's, uh, and, and you have to look at uh, dominant theories of the intelligentsia, some of which are quite hostile to the traditional notion of fact. Uh, and these have taken over the thinking um, of, uh, well, you know, it starts in universities. Uh, maybe it even starts earlier now, but it was starting in the universities. And so it carries on. And journalism today is largely a profession of university graduates, so they're absorbing all of this. At one time, journalists were more like tradesmen that didn't go to university, but now they do. Um, and they absorb this. So uh, it's possible for obvious untruths to continue for long periods of time, even though the evidence showing that they're wrong is readily available uh, because of the alternative media, thank God. Uh, the, the evidence showing the falsity of these statements is out there, but it will be uh, ignored because Ezra is a radical or 
well, I don't think anybody calls you a radical, but they just, you know, I, I don't know what they say about True North, but um, they'll have a reason well, for ignoring they, they'll, it. They'll call, they'll call us the same stuff that they'll call the rebel. They'll just say we're far right and whatever. They're, that I mean, it's, it's, it's almost comical now, uh, Tom, because, you know, we, we, we take great efforts to make sure that our journalism is factual and everything. And it doesn't even matter that the legacy media will continue to, to write you off, which I, th I think, you know, increasingly they... They, they, they don't matter as much as they once did. And so, you, you know, you can see their power when it comes to creating fake news narratives like this one. But at the same time, I think you're right that many Canadians now have seen past the narrative and it makes them doubt everything else they're hearing uh, from, the, from, from the media. But I think that, uh, you know, your book is certainly a tremendous service, uh, even just to have that historical record there and anyone who's curious can can pick it up and you can give it to to friends give it to family for for christmas it's, it's a great read uh, i encourage everyone go pick it up the book is called grave error how the media misled us and the truth about residential schools you can find it on amazon and head on over to our website tnc.news uh slash grave error you'll find the book there uh tom thank you for your time thank you for all your efforts in putting this all together it's it's a tremendous service you've done for the country and i appreciate it yeah, and thanks to you for the title. I have to say the title was your idea, so you deserve a lot of credit for that. <laughs> okay, all right. Well, um, thank you again for joining us, and uh, take care, Dr. Flanagan. Thank you for tuning in. I'm Candace Malcolm, and this is The Candace Malcolm Show.